Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's an entrepreneur, the owner of Dark Horse Schooling and the Dark Horse Schooling podcast. It's Tracy Brinkman. How are you doing today, Tracy? I am doing excellent, Alex. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and being ready to talk about your rise to the challenge. Absolutely. My pleasure. What we'd like to do first is we go straight to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, let's see. Where I'm from, that's, a, that's an interesting question to answer because my dad was a 23-year veteran in the United States Army, so I'm from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, born in uh, Colorado, but we moved like every two or three years, so I lived all over the United States, pretty much the Midwest and the Western states the most. <clears throat> And then uh, spent about six years of my childhood growing up in Germany as, Germany as well. So I got to experience a little bit of everything that uh, I think this world has to offer when it comes to people, personalities, creeds, religions, races, the whole nine yards. So it was kind of cool. Uh, things I, I was into, uh, obviously, I think one of the cool things about uh, moving a lot is uh, it taught me to develop the, uh, the skill of connecting with folks. And I usually used humor to do that. Uh, so I, I developed a pretty, uh, I'll call it a good sense of humor. Not everyone would agree, obviously. Um, but then later on, I got into um, uh, martial arts quite a bit, which taught me a lot of discipline and which probably went along with that military structure I had uh, become used to uh, with my father's lifestyle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did you have like a favorite place that you lived in? Like any place that's like memorable or like you enjoyed learning about the culture and the atmosphere in those areas? I think there are two places that resonated really well with me. One was Texas, and it probably wasn't so much the place as it was the timeline. So it was, you know, just before I was a teenager. So I was starting to I think really make more real connections with people, you know, starting to build relationships, you know, you get those first crushes as a kid and everything. So I think it was more developing emotionally as a youngster that make, that makes that bond. Uh, and then of course my, uh, my time in Germany. So the last, the last duty station my dad had right before Texas or right after Texas was uh, uh, Southern Germany done in, uh, down in it was Bamberg actually, and uh, of course I continued to d- to develop and go into my uh, early teen years. And I just I don't know uh, I'm from a German background. My grandfather was actually in the military on the German side of the World War and came over to the states uh, as uh, from that. But uh, so I had that connection to there, and we always lived off base. So we got to live amongst, I'll call it the people, they call it the economy, but we weren't just, I wasn't just exposed to just military American folks. I was actually exposed to the people out, you know, in the German culture. And I grew up speaking the language. My grandfather, like I said, my grandfather spoke German. So I grew up speaking German. So it made it easier to transition and get around uh, in, in Europe as well. So, I mean, those two places really resonated with me a lot. Growing up in those different cultures, did it, would you say it helped you grow skills and that maybe some people may not have if they haven't been in those situations? I don't know if it uh, grew skills, but it certainly 
it, it brought me to have a level of appreciation of different types of people that are out there, right? You got the, you know, the A types that are, I'm going after it, I'm going after it. And you got the more laid back types, you know, just, they're like, okay, I, I, it'll happen. But, you know, then and inside of that, there, there's all these different kind of folks that, uh, that resonate with different things. You know, some folks in, I'll, I'll speak in, in clinical terms, some people are more kinesthetic and some people are more visual, you know, some people like red hair, some people like black hair. I mean, and there's all kinds of, and there's, you know, on, on the other side of that, there's all kinds of folks that have preconceived notions of, of people, depending on, you know, maybe they have black hair or red hair or they're kinesthetic or they're not, you know, so you get exposed to a lot of that, you know, traveling the States and traveling in general. So I think it made me aware of those so I could learn how to handle them or avoid them as necessary. I think one of those things is like, I know for me going to a college that was international based, I kind of learned a lot about how people interact with others from mm -hmm. different cultures and what they do differently. And it kind of made me grow as a person where I can be fluent in other ways than the normal norms that I'm used to. And it keeps me growing as a person. Absolutely. Growing up with that, with your dad being in the military, did you kind of like that structure that he had, or was it kind of like you got you're getting away from it and you were able to be free in a way? Uh, a little of both, actually. I think when my dad retired, I was in my just you know I say fourteen, fifteen, so that mid-teen range, and finished high school in Southern California. So I went from this very structured environment to probably the most liberal place on the planet, let alone the United States. And I went from being the you know the guy, the uh, the kid with the short hair and you know the high water jeans to becoming a surfer and you know just this pendulum swung almost all the way the other way and it didn't happen overnight but it, it started to happen and for me I think one of the things that actually started that was the school I ended up going to in Southern California was behind in curriculum from where I was when I got out uh, of the military based schools. And so I was relearning stuff I already knew. So I became very bored. I was always very good in school because um, it kept me, I think it kept me engaged, right? Uh, it's like, ah, oh, this is interesting. Let me go learn it. Um, but here I was, you know, being introduced to stuff. It's like, I learned this two years ago. Uh, here's a great story. Um, I, I figured I'm going to take an easy class, I'm going to take German. I already spoke German, right? And uh, probably about the end of the first semester, I believe it was, I get a test and I got an F. No joke. I got an F in a language I could speak. Now, sure, we can get an F in English too, right? But <laughs> so um, I went and I showed my dad the test and he, he was looking at it and, you know, the questions were in English and you have to write the questions in, in, in German. And my dad goes, well, you got all the answers right. Well, so him and I, we go down and, uh, you know, he goes to the teacher and he says, all right, these answers he wrote down here. I, I've been speaking this since I was a kid. My father came from the country. He's right. All the answers he wrote are right. Well, come to find out the lady that was teaching the language couldn't speak it. She was just going from the book. And because what I wrote didn't match what was in the book, right, which was very, you know, very structured. Um, it was less conversational as it was, you know, just 
more rigid, raw English uh, rules. So she's like, well, it's wrong. He goes, no, no, it's not wrong. It's right. He goes, it doesn't say exactly what you said, but his answer is right. And, you know, he went and explained it to her. So it was things like that that made me uh, a little less, okay, I really liked the structure. And it started me, you know, going away from school and hanging around with, uh, you know, a less than savory crowd as a result. That is so interesting with how that your teacher and that, because I right? wanted to link like Spanish. Every, there's like so many different variations of Spanish depending on which country you're from. So right. like someone that could speak it, but it's not the way the book is, they, they would be wrong. And I'm like, how they, they speak that language. They know what the answers are and how they are. Exactly. Us, it's like, I, I'm not fluent in that language, but I'm going trying to figure out from the book part. That's so interesting. That yeah. Someone yeah. is teaching that class doesn't know the language doesn't know yeah, really wow. weird wow. it was bizarre <laughs> yeah. did you have any motivations or inspirations like someone you looked up to I mean, other than my father, obviously my father was a huge inspiration for me. Um, uh, as I got into martial arts, uh, Bruce Lee actually became an inspiration for me. And it was beyond just the movies. Obviously, you know, given the fact I'm in my you know, mid-50s, Bruce Lee would have been huge in my teenage years uh, before he passed away. But, uh, you know, I went to, out beyond just the movies and uh, started reading the things he had written, you know, the like Tao of Jikondo, the philosophies. And so that was like, all right, this is really cool. And I think that that fed the structure that I needed. The martial arts kind of led that structure. You know, there's a routine you go through to, to learn things and to graduate and get a belt and, and to move on and to move on. And so that became someone I looked up to. And I think beyond that, it was really just the, uh, the, the male role models in my life would have truly been my, my father and my grandfather. My great-grandma was a huge role model as well. She uh, ha actually came out to Southern California on a, you know, she was a child, obviously. Um, she came out in California from Florence, Kansas on a uh, covered wagon, oh. right? So we're going way back. And uh, they, they uh, got a plot of land in Southern California and literally built the home that she lived in that I would go and frequent and see her on. You know, they poured the, the, I mean, they did it all from the raw, the raw thing. And then they tore that down and rebuilt it uh, with more modern techniques uh, later on in life. But, you know, she had that home for, gosh, I want to say it was a hundred plus years as it went on through the family. And it was just, it was really cool to engage engage with her and hear some of the stories. And, you know, I was in, again, being in my mid teens and she was in her, I want to say seventies, probably mid to uh, early seventies. And we pulled, we would always go, we lived in the same town, probably just on opposite sides. And we'd go over there every Sunday and play dominoes and have dinner and hang out. You know, my aunt and uncle would be there. It was, it was a cool family bonding moment, but listening to the, the stories of, you know, how things have changed since I was a kid. And this was, you know, what, late 70s early 80s we're talking about here so how much have things changed since then you know what kind of stories she been changed we we pulled up one time and uh, she was up on the uh, up on the roof of her of the house it was a it was a single uh, story structure but still up on the roof of the house she was putting down the tar redoing the redoing the roof up there in her 70s i was like you are awesome it's like a superwoman right there Right, exactly. Up on the on the roof and everything. <laughs>
So would you say from your childhood with the whole structure, do you still use the whole structure system nowadays? Uh, I use it overall. Absolutely. I'm still an early riser. My wife and I are usually up and about three thirty, four o'clock, uh, you know, Monday through Friday. We'll sleep in. And when I say sleep in, that's like another hour or so um, on the on the weekends. And, uh, you know, we go through our routines, you know, get a little workout in, hit the breakfast in, you know, get a little reading in in the mornings. And then, you know, and then, you know, just start doing whatever tasks are at hand. So there's a lot of structure around that. But we keep the spontaneity in, in a structured format. It almost seems... Uh, you know, counterintuitive to say that. It's like we have a space where we're free to do things and we'll throw something in there um, at random. Mm -hmm. But usually that at random is in advance. We're big concert goers. We love going, obviously we're not doing a lot of that right now, right? Uh, we love going to see uh, live bands and festivals and stuff. You know, so we keep a lot of a space open to a lot for that. And then when they announce it, Oh, and then we throw it in there right away, you know? And then the cool thing about that, well, you're there to go to see probably a handful. If we talk about a, a festival that lasts three days, you're there to see a couple of the headliners, right? Oh, we have to go see these bands. But then there are so many new up and coming and random bands that you get to do that. So it kind of feeds both the structure and the spontaneity at the same time. But yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of routine that keeps, uh, keeps me alive. What was that dream job that you were wanting growing up? What, what were you wanting to pursue? When I was younger, I went through a couple of phases, as most young youngsters do. Uh, being in Southern California, there was a period in my time when I wanted to be a stuntman, of all things, right? I wanted to be, uh, if you ever saw Hooper, you know, of uh, the old, uh, what was that, Burt Reynolds movie, uh, where he was a, a stuntman in there. And uh, I actually rode my bike uh, from where I lived in Nowak, California, into Los Angeles to go to the, uh, uh, the Stuntman's Association, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, hall. You know, they, they had a place in there and, uh, you know, I kind of checked it out and they're like, well, you, you got to be, you got to get your SAC, your, your uh, actress card and everything like that. So oh, that was a little more struggle and a little more money than I had at the time. So uh, the other thing I'd wanted back in those, those days was I wanted to be, uh, it was called a forensic pathologist, right? You know, you're uh, like a Quincy Jones, if you, now, of course, I'm dating myself again, which it was a, it was a television series on, on TV where basically a forensic uh, pathologist is the guy that, you know, he'll, he'll do some of the autopsies when, and try to figure out what happened to somebody, right? When they pass away, right? Oh, why did you die of natural causes to someone? And, you know, so that was always intriguing to me, that investigative uh, piece of it. Unfortunately, uh, I'm red, green, colorblind. So, the, the, the shading of tissues would uh, would have eluded me and would have been, you know, probably a bad idea to, oh, okay, you're fine, you know, and they're dying of something, right? So we don't want to be doing that. Uh, and so I, 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 I just kind of embarked on the, uh, the tech path as computers started to evolve. I actually joined the service right out of, uh, out of high school. And uh, they, uh, uh, they let me be what I wanted to be. And I'm, I'm not saying that as a tagline, <laughs> but uh, when I was at the recruiter's office, he says, you got a choice. You can pick your first duty station or you can pick your MOS, which is your job, right? Your, your, um, 
your occupational specialty. And I said, well, I want my first duty station to be Germany. I wanted to go back to Germany. I loved it so much. And he said, well, in that case, you get to pick your first duty station and your job because no one wanted to go overseas back then. Everyone wanted to go to you know, Hawaii or Florida or somewhere like that. And I'm like, I'll go to Germany. Heck yeah. And uh, uh, I picked, I ended up being what they call a flags, flagged records clerk which is a really boring job um, in, the, in the military. When you join, you get what's called a 201 file. And it's pretty much, it follows you through your entire military career, however short or long that may be. And everything that happens to you uh, goes into this file. And back then they were all physical files and you'd carry them around with you. And uh, if something bad happened to you, so if you got in trouble, your file would come to my desk and I would make sure all the, proper actions were taken as you went through whatever trouble you got into you know if you were found innocent okay that's all good right uh but you you nothing good could happen to you You couldn't go on leave you couldn't get a raise couldn't get a promotion so all these things so there's a very structure around that well I, I took my uh, love for computers and I actually built my first computer from a kit in a magazine back then. And I took my job and I programmed it into this computer. I, I was learning visual. You know, uh, it was just basic back then. And I, because it, it was just tracking simple records. So I, I actually wrote a simple record tracking program that reminded me, okay, this person needs to do this on that date. And it would come up and I'd go to the file and I'd do the thing and I'd put in the new, you know, new entry and then it would go back into its uh, cycle again and that started me down the uh, the path of uh, being a, a techno geek uh, learning computer programming so when I got out of the military I, I started that up as a, a freelance project uh, in Southern California doing database programming for uh, insurance companies did the military at that time not have anything programming wise or were you kind of someone that was trying to I, ju- I actually I actually just stumbled on it and they did have some things programming wise but I didn't go back and to change my MOS at the time would you say that you were kind of following in your dad's footsteps with going into the military or this was like something that you've always wanted to do it was it was a bit of following in my dad's footsteps. I was uh, like I mentioned earlier. I had gotten to, uh, started hanging around with a less than savory crowd and just doing stupid stuff. I mean, beyond the usual teenage stupid stuff. And uh, it was it was a good choice for me at the time because it was like, all right, if I don't do this, I'm probably going to keep traveling down this awful path and make some bigger mistakes that could cost me time behind, you know, bars and what have you. So uh, I made the choice to uh, go into the military to say, all right, I'm just going to get away from all this, go do my thing and hopefully find something in the process. And, and if that was a career in the military, cool. If it wasn't, that's cool too. So after the military, what was your next path that you were going towards? Well, I, like I said, I came out of there and I was following that, uh, that, uh, that computer programming piece, uh, doing some uh, computer programming for preferred provider organizations and insurance companies. And uh, it, was, it was going pretty well. I mean, I actually did wrote some programs for uh, a doctor's billing facility and, you know, for like a, in a couple other places. And uh, I, I was doing really well. I mean, this is just right before the dot-com boom, really everything started taking off big time. Uh, computers were were on the rise and uh, things were starting to happen and uh, you know I was, uh, I was cashing checks God was doing okay uh, but again uh, I found myself 
reintroducing myself to questionable characters. And I'm just going to say it like this. I started partying too much. I started drinking too much. And I started doing drugs at the same time. And uh, that really, you know, as it was like, you first started, you're like, oh, this is nothing. Like you go out party once or twice, right? You go get drunk once or twice. You're like, okay, I'll just sleep it off. I'm good. But then you start doing more and more and more. It's like the drugs are the same way. Oh, I do that first, do that first line of Coke, right? Oh, wow, that was awesome. Okay, if that was it, you're cool, right? I tried it, it's all good. Uh, that wasn't the path I took. I, I started down a real dark road um, and to sustain my habit, started selling and getting other people to sell as well. And uh, for about two-ish years or so, I, I stayed in that life pretty heavily. It was uh, not a good scene. Uh, unfortunately, I was good at it and... and that made it a little too easy. It was way too uh, enticing, right? Uh, oh, I could do this. And, you know, I had a couple of uh, folks that were doing it with me uh, that uh, I'll say underlings, so to speak. And so I could really just, uh, I'll, I'll go buy it over here and you go sell it. I get the money and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, you know? And I'm like, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. This is pretty easy stuff right here. And uh, I was probably out one weekend doing a, probably about a three day party binge. Uh, yeah. Probably three days is, a, is an honest statement. It may have been two, but you know, you know what I'm saying? And I get back to my condo and I see the door is, is, is kicked in. And I, I thought I had gotten robbed. Obviously, you, you hang out with these kind of characters, that kind of thing is going to happen. Um, and when I get inside, it becomes obvious I, my place had been raided, right? The cops had kicked in the door of my house. I mean, and it was just like you see in the movies, the after effects, right? Furniture's flipped over, right? You know, things are thrown everywhere. Cereal and, you know, mashed potato flakes are dumped out on the counters as they're looking for things. And I was looking around going, what the hell? Well, clearly, um, all the decisions I had made up that, to that point had gotten me a little bit too much attention. And uh, um, I decided to change my path and really probably not so much, and I say this in hindsight, obviously, um, because of myself. I think if it had just been me, I may have continued down that path. I, I don't know, right? But I had a four-month-old daughter at the time. Luckily, she wasn't in the home when it happened, and I wasn't at the home when it happened. Otherwise, I might not be talking to you right now. I might be talking to you with you know, like these things in front of me. <laughs> um, but uh, she was really a, a big motivator for me to say, okay, this is not a path I need to travel anymore. And luckily, with the help of my mom and dad and uh, a gentleman I call my brother, uh, he helped me. they all helped me get my act together, you know, clean up my act, clean up my body. Uh, and clean up my headset too. I mean, because really coming out of that, because of the uh, the caca I had been doing for a couple of years, you know, it kind of eroded my uh, my self esteem to the public, right, to the general public, because that's not an accepted thing to be doing, right. And uh, so I didn't go right back into computer programming. I, I mean, I needed to bring my uh, my myself myself worse. It was really damaged. Uh, so I was, I was literally, I was doing day jobs, you know, filing jobs, clerk jobs, working in a warehouse just to feel good about myself and get back up on my feet again. Um, so after probably about, I don't know, about a year of that or so, I landed a, a good role with the Coca-Cola company. And that started my rise in the corporate America world. And, uh, you know, that went from 
there to Home Depot. I've worked with Frontgate and David's Bridal and Victoria's Secrets. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with some really great brands uh, for long times and short times. I worked for Coke for 12 years and Home Depot for a couple of years, uh, Frontgate five years. But in, in each one of them was able to glean something awesome that they're really good at you know marketing from coca-cola if you're going to learn marketing that's probably the place to go they are a marketing machine uh long-winded answer (laughs) (laughs) would you say having your daughter kind of was it hard to be dealing with all those substances but then coming home and seeing her and knowing that one day it could go badly and then i wouldn't be able to see her you know, back then, my mindset was so selfish, I didn't think about it that way. Uh, you know, I was, I, I, was, I was invincible. You know, I was like, oh, this is easy. I got this down pat. You know, I was the, the, the cliche stupid idiot that you see on some of those television shows that you're just sitting there going, you're about to go down, dude. You just don't get it yet. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I did not even think about it from that perspective of, you know, there's this little life right there that I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about from the point of I'm having fun, I'm doing good, I'm bringing in cash, and that's taking care of you, right? Uh, which was a very selfish perspective. And obviously, that that door being kicked in, you know, was a little eye-opening moment. Going, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> so, working for those big companies, what's the one thing that you learned about yourself working for those companies? Ah, I learned a couple of things. I think one of the things I learned early on was to find someone to learn from. So a lot of big companies, and and it works for some people. I'm not always one of those folks. Um, You can hide in a big company, right? You could be really, really good at your job. And I like to think I'm really good at the things I do. And so that gets you enough notice to give you, you know, raises and promotions, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, but it, does it give you the attention that like, I, I, I like attention, you know, I, I'll get up in front of a stage of five, 10, 1500 people. I'm good. I'm right. Hey, give me the attention. Uh, and I think it, that taught me uh, one, find people to teach you more than just your job so that you're ready for the next thing, right? If you, if you just learn your job, you can get really good and you can live a comfortable life and that's for you. That's fine. One of the uh, one of the ladies, Angela, who was the um, the personal assistant to our director uh, for our, our division, you know, I asked her. I said, "How long have you been doing this?" And at that time, she had been doing it fifteen years. I'm like, fifteen years, this same job, you know. And she was really good at it. She knew she knew her director inside and out. She, she was those one of those cliche gals. He's like, uh, "Would you?" She's like, "Done, got it. You're good." And uh, she's like, yeah, this is, this is, I love to serve like this is my happy spot right here. And then when I go home, I don't have to worry about this. I come in, do my job, I go home. I'm like, I get it. For, you, for me, that wouldn't work, right? I, I need that next, that next step, that next challenge. So I learned to find someone that could teach me just outside my comfort zone so that when I got there, I wasn't totally in the dark and oh, panicking. I could actually step into it with a monicum of confidence. And then 
it was about teaching me something I had no idea about, right? So where I was at in Coca-Cola, uh, we were in, uh, we did North America marketing. So it wasn't the Coca-Cola bottler. We didn't make the product. We made all the advertising for the product. Okay. So pretty much if it had the Coca-Cola brand on it, it came through our shop, right? And so I was always learning what is it people were clicking with? Why were we doing this thing? Why were we doing that thing? Uh, and then when I got to like, for, um, for example, you go to a Home Depot, it's completely, it's a completely different uh, type of marketing, right? Because you're, you're targeting a different, different person, yeah. right? You're going after the DIYer, right? You, you need to have what they need and you need to be able to find it easy and et cetera, and those types of things. So it's a, it's a different tactic. It's like, okay, I get that. That's cool. And then there I started working with the marketing folks and learning things like uh, the metrics that they used on the websites and why, and why you would you'd throw it up and you'd bring it down. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. You know, and start using that in my planning. And then I go to somewhere like a front gate who sells uh, high-end furniture to folks, uh, you know, they targeted folks who had a home of a million five uh, or more, right? So they're, you know, they're, you're, you're talking about people that will buy a $10,000 outdoor furniture set, right? And, and that's what we sold. That's some of the things we sold. And so now you're, you're marketing to a completely different person, but the, a, a lot of the tactics are the same, but there are a few things you got to change. Uh, you know, one of the things they introduced, which, that was, uh, which makes perfect sense when, once you think about it, but they weren't doing it at first, was a white glove surface. So, hey, Mr. Mr. Rich Man, right? Mr. Well-to-do person. We, you just bought this $10,000 you know, outdoor uh, furniture set from us. We're happy to come in there and take your old furniture out for you and dispose of it. Set your, you know, bring your, old, your new furniture in, unpackage it, let you inspect it, set it all up for you to arrange it the way you want it to, and then take all the packaging away, right? Okay, well, you're thinking that makes perfect sense. Well, no one was offering it. So they started offering that service. Obviously, there's an upcharge that goes with it, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, you bought $10,000 worth of furniture. Yeah, a $500 upcharge for setup <laughs> is nothing. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, please, I don't have to deal with it then. You know, and so these little things, you're like, okay, that's a completely different way of thinking of things. And then they started a sister company where they would take the products that were proven from the, uh, from, Frontgate side, and they would recreate them with step down materials. So, over here, you've got the finest materials on the planet, okay, $10,000. Yeah. Over here, all right, we're going to use materials that will last a few years. So, they're still really good materials, but now, you know, you can get it for 750 bucks you know, night and day or $1,200, right? Uh, depending on, on, on the set. So it's the same concept, but now we're going to target a, a bigger market because there's more folks out there that, you know, that your blue collar folks, you know, the you and me's of the world, right? And uh, so now you're taking those same kind of tactics and marketing to them and giving, offering them the same services, obviously at a different price, but now they're feeling like they're a million five homeowner because they're getting that oh wow i saw this in that catalog it was ten thousand dollars this looks just like it right you know and so the, and they're still getting the value for the money and your and everything so it's, it's all of that going in play and then you go when i worked at uh, say a david's bridal now it's all about okay now it's you know price shopping everyone's trying to get that great price and uh you know it's mass 
It's mass produced, but it's mass produced where everything looks unique and they can do these quick little add-ons in the store. And then over here, we also have the designer lines, which are the step-up prices, right? And so there's that, there's that nice mix of things. And you start learning about the nuances of, you know, obviously apparel and dresses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why do you think that dress sold? Well, it could have been, you know, it could have been the heart bust, or it could have been the fact that it was a mermaid or a princess and all these different things. And so now you're learning to dig in the data to find it and then the different ways that they show their stuff on the website and how people shop and the time frames for shopping you know and etc etc so i mean everywhere i went it was like i was just absorbing every everything i could say like, okay now if i t if i if i stay here for a while i can take all the stuff i've learned and the new stuff i'm learning and and share it and be even better and if i go somewhere else well, now i just i need to grab all this and carry it with me <laughs> Marketing is such a fascinating thing to learn about. And like, Isn't it? when you were explaining like the different, cause you were hitting different target markets with your, like the people that you were targeting. Like Coca-Cola is for kind of an everyday person that likes soda. There's no specific types of person, but then yeah. you went to Home Depot and now you got the DIY. But some of those people that like Coca-Cola are those DIY. So you're able to Absolutely. absorb that information yeah, I use the tools when you're with Home Depot, but you might have to change it up in a way. And it's so fascinating, like coming up with, like just seeing on TV the different apps. Like, if you think Coca-Cola, the first thing I think of is the polar bear. Yes. Like that's just like I mean they did their job because now anytime I think of polar bears, you're gonna think Coca-Cola. See right away, and when they do the branding with the Olympics and having the rings on the bottles and stuff. And oh yeah. We were actually, my team did the, uh, the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. We did all of that. And it was, it was an amazing thing to go through. Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. And even inside that, you, you think about Coca-Cola, the, the, you know, the, the brand, the major brand, you know, they also have Sprite, you know, and then, you know, they ended up buying Barks. So they, now they have a root beer and each one of those, they target towards a, a demographic. So obviously a Sprite is like a Coke, you know, anyone could drink it, but they find it's very popular with a very certain uh, demographic. And so they use that in their marketing. Um, and then the same thing with when they were looking for, they were looking for a brand to buy so they could be a little more edgy with their, uh, with their advertising and with some of their marketing. And they would never do that with their 110 year old brand, you know, the, the, the flagship brand, they wouldn't go out on the edge with Coke. Uh, so when they got, um, they, they found Barks and bought it. Barks was already an edgy brand for, uh, for a, a root beer uh, soft drink. And so when they brought it on board, they, they really went after that. You know, the whole Barks has bite commercials. And then they also did, uh, if I remember Surge back in the, uh, what was that? The nineties, I believe it was, there was a, a product there. It was a, a citrus product and uh it was out for i don't know three four years and they did some really crazy uh, advertising with that that they would have never done with coca-cola the the main brand they actually were able to go have some real fun with it you talked about um wanting to find what's next and i'm done i'm going through that same experience where you kind of learn everything and then i'm always what's next for me to learn so i'm always reaching out and trying to ask my managers and directors I'm like can I learn about this part because to me I love learning and yeah this helps because if maybe there's that future job where you have that experience and that knowledge 
it works perfectly. Yeah. So I'm always doing learning. And even when I'm doing these interviews, I learn something new about mm -hmm. what I could implement in my life or a different way of thinking about certain things. And Absolutely. Going from there. What would you say was the biggest challenge that you found working with those big brands? Uh, idea implementation is probably the biggest ones. Uh, the bigger the boat, the longer it takes to turn. Um, and uh, so, I mean, if I, if I think back, probably Coca-Cola would have been the one that was the most challenging, but I was lucky enough in the director that was over, over my, um, my team uh, was very, allowed me to be very, she gave me a wide berth, you could say, right? So there was a, a lot of things. I mean, we had uh, a number of major brands that uh, we, that we uh, serviced, you know, we're talking about the McDonald's and the Wendy's and the BKs of the world. And, uh, you know, we had to be as nimble as possible, which mean we had to watch our inventory positions, but with a, with a, an ever changing brand and an ever changing marketplace, right. Uh, you, you could come up with an idea and someone, Oh, go print a thousand of those and you sell five. Well, what are we going to do with the rest of these, right? And, you know, there's not an endless amount of money out there. So you got to figure out ways to, to move the, through that inventory and how to get that out into the marketplace uh, effectively and efficiently. And so I came up with a few ideas. And, uh, you know, it was like you go up to and service through committee. Oh, here's the idea. Here's the pros. Here's the cons. Here's the, you, know, you, you do the little executive summary. You write the whole report. And like, oh God, just stick a needle in my eye. By the time I can get through this committee, I could have solved this problem, right? And uh, I went, actually went to my director at one point. I says, look, here's the solution right here, A, B, C. There is really no con. The only con to this is I need to go to these teams and say, look, I'm going to tack on an extra 2% onto the budget that you get, that you apply to us to get this product from us. And they're going to say, why 2%? And I'm saying, well, because you're spending five, you're using five cent in obsolete or 5% in obsolete inventory. So I'm willing to eat over half of that, but you're going to pay for this. And I think the real benefit of that is now you're going to be watching it because if I'm taking 2% of your budget, you know, your marketing budget, and I'm just going to put it into a slush fund to, to write stuff down or write it off when you're like, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, then you're going to be a little more mindful. That was the only con was I had to go get them to agree to that. And I was able to do that. I was, she goes like, if you can get them all to sign up to do that, let's make it happen. I just gave you carte blanche, go make it happen. And so it took me about a month to go, you know, meet with all the folks that, you know, that were in charge, that had the fiduciary responsibility saying, Hey, here's what we're going to do. Bing, bang, boom. Here's the problem. Here's a solution. Everyone's happy. I'll take the responsibility out of your hand. I will manage it. We'll get it handled. And they're like, Oh, sure. But it, so, and I guess the, the cool thing about it was instead of telling them, yeah, it's going to cost you 2% of your budget. It was more of a, I'm going to take this away from you. You know, the, the responsibility of having to deal with this obsolete, give that to me and give me that 2% for doing that. And you're free to do the rest of the stuff that you're really good at, which is creating the stuff for your, you know, your BK customer, your, your McDonald's customer. And they're like, oh, please, please do that. You know, they're willing to take that off because I already knew how I could get rid of it. I know I can move the product. I had the solution. They didn't have the solutions. They're like, ah, oh, what do we do with this? Um, so it, that was probably the biggest challenge was finding 
the right people to help you make those decisions in the time that you want it. You're like, oh, we could solve so much with this if we would just do it. And they're like, no, we've got a process. And, and, you know, obviously given the fact that I came from the military environment, I understand the structure and the process, but there's a time when you're saying, okay, dude, doing it just to do it, it's kind of stupid, right? When you can just say you and you have the responsibility on your side, I have the responsibility on my side. Do we agree? Cool. Done. Moving on. Right. <laughs> so during this time, you mentioned that you had that time frame where you were going through the, the substances and the drugs sure. and alcohol. Was everything being um, good for you personally, or was there any more things coming up or a relapse in a way? Uh, luckily, I never relapsed on the drug side of things. Uh, knock on wood. Um, I, I stayed clean and sober the rest of my life. Uh, you know, did I, did I stumble? Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of times, uh, you know, right coming right out of it. You know, I did stumble, but it never took me back. And uh, I, I, can, I can honestly say for the past 40 years, have never touched one. Uh, anything other than, you know, what the doctor has said I should have. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did have a couple of more big events that, uh, you know, made me, kind of gave me a reality check uh, during the, uh, the peak of my Coca-Cola career. My second daughter was born. And uh, when she was, uh, when she was in the womb, one of her arteries didn't fully develop and this artery was feeding her intestinal tract. So when she was born, she was born with like 20 centimeters of small intestine versus the 200 she should have been born with. So she didn't have enough small intestine to absorb nutrition orally. Um, and so for the first three months of her life, she went through six major operations as they tried different things to try and fix the issue. I mean, one of the things they tried is they, you know, they took the intestine and because the you know, you know, small intestine has so many veins and arteries to absorb the nutrition, they had to cut it, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle. And what they tried to do is like re put it together and then put it end to end to try and double what she had in the hopes that would give her enough to sustain at least while she grew it and it would grow longer. And uh, that was that the, the operation was successful, but it didn't give her enough, um, surface. Um, so across the course of those six operations, you know, they finally got her stabilized. Uh, one of the operations was to put in what's called a TPN line, a total parental nutrition line, which is basically a bag of the raw nutrients that go, you know, comes from an IV bag straight into an artery right above her heart. It would dump in there and then her heart would pump it through her body. Now, the body being the amazing thing that it is, says, okay, well, I don't need to filter this stuff. And what does our liver do? Our liver filters stuff. Oh, I don't need this liver, so her liver starts to deteriorate. Now she needs a liver and a small bowel transplant. Um, so they get her stabilized, and uh, we finally get her on the list. And uh, you know, you're, just, you're going through life. And as a parent, at that point, all you can do is wait and hope you know um this is back in the beeper days they gave us a beeper and they say if this beeper goes off you know grab the bags that you already have ready and get to the children's hospital because you know organs have become available and we're gonna do everything everything happens fast and i'm like okay cool and uh we had one time that that beeper went off and you know we had our bags are you know you, you it's like when uh of uh 
your wife is pregnant, right? You've got that bag at the ready. Uh, so you, you're grabbing a bag and you throw it. And I think I broke every uh, land speed record on, uh, I had an, I had an IROC Z at the time. So it was really easy to do, you know, getting there. And uh, unfortunately the organs that, uh, that caused the beeper to go off were not viable. Unfortunately, this, uh, the, the child who, who would have been donating the organs had, uh, had been beaten and uh, the organs were damaged. Uh, so double whammy there. Uh, so after this call, the doctors realized that between everything, um, Krista really needed to be closer to the hospital. And when I say the hospital, we were in Atlanta working for Coca-Cola. The best hospital for this particular operation was in Pittsburgh. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So now um, mom and Krista move up to Pittsburgh uh, and they're in the Ronald McDonald house right across the street from the children's hospital, a great facility, right? Anyone ever worries about that? Ronald McDonald's houses are awesome. And uh, so now we're still waiting and still hoping. And, you know, so going up, my, me and my older, oldest daughter are going up there every weekend or so, visiting and seeing things. And about 17 months in, uh, Krista takes a really uh, turn for the worse. Her health just drops uh, she had an accident. One of the nurses, you know, um, you know, dropped her. I hate to say this, right? Uh, literally dropped her and she landed on her head and she had this huge hematoma. So now her body, who's already weak, is struggling just to heal this, this uh, hematoma on her head. And in the meantime, everything else starts to deteriorate even more. And she goes, uh, you know, almost unconscious. And, uh, you know, they move her into a regular, into a regular room and down to ICU. And it's like a couple of weekends of that. And it's like, when you're a parent and anyone, anyone who is a parent that may be listening will understand what I'm about to say. When you look at your child, you can look at your child and know that something's wrong. They're just, there's something about the way they're carrying themselves. There's something, maybe it's that, you know, father daughter connection, that parent child relationship, you just know. And I went up there one weekend and I walked into the room and I just, I walked in and I knew something was wrong. And obviously there was something wrong. I'm telling you the story, right? Uh, but there was something even more wrong. And so I pulled the doctor aside and I asked, you know, if, if the organs were available right now, would she survive the operation? And I got a bunch of doctors speaking, him and Han, and I literally, no joke, grabbed him, pulled him into a janitor's closet and closed the door and he looked, it's just you and me, man, right? No hospital administrators, no insurance companies, just a couple of guys. And uh, you know, finally told me, no, I don't, I don't think she would survive right now. And so uh, not the answer I wanted, obviously, and, but I knew, okay, now I've got, I've got a baseline. So do you think... She, her health will improve to the point where she could survive the operation. Given all the challenges that she had faced and everything her body had gone through, he finally told me he didn't believe so. So now the choice becomes, do we leave her on the machines that are not right this moment keeping her alive uh, and hope for the best, you know, to the prayers and what have you, um, or disconnect? And this is a personal opinion, a personal choice for anyone who's going through anything like this. And I respect whatever choice they would make. But for me, uh, it felt like if I was keeping her here, it would be for me, not for her, right? It would have been selfish. And like I said, that's almost how I felt way back in my dark drug days. I was selfish, right? It was all about me and the party and everything. So uh, I didn't want to swing that pendulum so far that way that 
I was going to be selfish and keep her in her pain for my, for, you know, for my selfishness. Right. So opted to just connect her. And uh, this is a, a literal statement. You know, they, they put her up in swaddling cloth and her favorite blanket. And I sat down in a rocking chair in her ER room and I rocked her to sleep one last time. And she literally, you know, uh, went to sleep that, that last time as I rocked her. And it's, well, sorry, a little wispy eye there. <laughs> um, it's, it's a horrible thing to go through, but I was blessed to have gone through it the way that I did because I could tell her goodbye and I could tell her thank you for all the things you've taught me in her short time here. I mean, she taught me so many amazing things about looking at life through a new set of eyes, looking at life a little bit differently, greeting the world every day with a smile. Um, she had this uh, cool thing. Have you ever seen the movie E.T. where E.T. actually used his finger and it was all glowing and he would touch and heal? Well, whenever she saw something new that she hadn't encountered before, be it a dog, a cat, a, a stuffed animal, a piece of food, she would reach that finger out real slow and tentative and touch it, right? And once she touched it and it was okay, she'd grab it and it's in her mouth or she's playing with it or whatever, you know? And just to watch her on those days when I knew she had to be in pain given what she was going through and what, what had happened to her on any given day, uh, but she was still had this big, bright-eyed, blue-eyed, bright, beautiful smile on her face and, uh, you know, and a way for anyone who, who greeted her. And, and so it, it, those were the lessons I took from all of that, right? Appreciate every day you have with anyone that you love or care about. Um, and people come into your life and exit your life for whatever reason, for a reason, right? Whether they're here for 30 seconds, 30 years, or, you know, or 300 years, right? They're here in your life. You guys have crossed paths. You and I, Alex, have crossed paths for a reason, right? And it may be just so I can hear a piece of your story and you can hear a piece of mine, or there's something I'm going to learn from you or something you're going to learn from me, right? If we don't take advantage of those lessons, well, shame on us, right? Yeah. So I was telling her, thank you for that, uh, that was, you know, turning point number two for me. So talk about how Dark Horse Schooling came upon. Dark Horse, Dark Horse Schooling came upon, I had done a, started a podcast probably about four years ago that went for about uh, two years. And really it was a, uh, it was a mouthpiece for my personal development journey. So coming out of uh, Krista's passing, I threw myself into my work, which was a good thing, um, but to keep my head set right, right? Because you could throw yourself into work and still be all jacked up in the head. Uh, I threw myself also into personal development. And back then it was all about Zig Ziglar and, you know, Jim Rohn and Anthony Robbins was coming up at the time and, and Tamara Jones and a, a host of other ones. You know, uh, I threw myself into all their body of work, their, you know, conferences and get togethers and was lucky enough to meet a couple of them. And uh, so this podcast a few years ago was kind of, uh, I was going through, you know, turning point number three, and it was the mouthpiece of me sharing um, that personal development journey, right? How to keep your head set right. And, uh, and you know, it did pretty good. You know, it really, the format was just me getting on the microphone and sharing whatever was on my mind that day, right? And I did it five days a week for a, a couple of years. And then uh, uh, what was going on in my world, I didn't feel aligned with being able to share that. I didn't feel, uh, uh, I almost had this imposter syndrome, right? 
I got shit going on in my world right now that if people looked at me and saw what I was, what was going on in my world, it was just a wicked divorce and all that kind of noise. They'd be like, who are you to get up here and tell me how to be happy and how to, you know, set goals when you can't even manage that. So I I stepped aside and recently, I mean, I'm in a good spot and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to pick this back up. And, but rather than just do all personal development, uh, I wanted to share some of the, uh, you know, uh, business journey, right. And really more for the entrepreneurs. And because I always felt like there's so many folks that feel like they're the dark horse. And for me, a dark horse is someone who could win the race, right? They get up there on the track, they've got the skill set, right? And it may not be a fine-tuned engine yet, but they, they, they've got something inside them and that, that starting gate's open, right? And there are people either holding them back or they've locked the gates or tripped them as they come out. But if you just let them run their race, they could win. Uh, so hence the Dark Horse uh, uh, Entrepreneur Podcast and Dark Horse Schooling because I wanted to you know start you know building uh, there's a course I'm getting ready to come out with and I and I do coaching you know based on the what I call the six C's uh, of life. I actually like that whole term dark horse because you hear it in like sports a lot like some yeah. dark horse like they're they're there they have the skills but they haven't had that moment to shine in a way. Right. And right. when they get that opportunity, it kind of is like they showcase it. And people are like, wow, yeah, I didn't think he was going to do that. And it's kind of a, it's one of those terms, like with my show, we use the, the Phoenix as our mm-hmm. logo and where a Phoenix rises and it kind of, it's kind of like a rebirth or like showcasing the new journey that you're going on. Absolutely. Is you have those skills, but you're ready to showcase it to the world. And right. So Absolutely. Absolutely right. So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? What are you wanting to accomplish in the next few years? Um, I think for me, I want to you know, level up my coaching, right? I like to um, get, I got a couple of spots open. I want to get some more folks uh, into the fold, so to speak. And uh, like I said, I got a, a product and get ready to launch out. I, I got like three more product ideas in the back of my head that not, not necessarily would spin off of this, but certainly would could definitely they would all work well together. So kind of a host of suite of products, and and they would really be geared towards that entrepreneur. And you know, I think the COVID um, experience that we've all you know had to go through of late uh, kind of opened the doors a little more. Uh, a little more wider, a little wider than uh, normally, because so many people are like turning to the online space right now. Like, oh, wow. And everyone was doing online stuff already. But now with COVID, everyone's like, okay, I might want to up my game a little bit. And uh, there's, you know, I think there's opportunities for everyone out there that has some sort of skill set. And, and when I say skill set, might just, it could be you're good with your hands and, you know, doing something, even mechanic, you know, uh, tactile, or it could be you've got some stuff up here that other people would, you know, would pay to learn, right? And I think, and I, I'm an honest believer that everybody has something inside them that they that others would benefit from them sharing it with them and whether they pay for it or just get it for free, giving them the tools to do that uh, through some coaching or through some, you know, some, uh, some of these uh, types of uh, products would definitely uh, make me feel real good about it. 
So based on your journey, the last question I want to ask you, what tips or advice would you give someone listening to this interview to overcome their obstacles, to overcome their challenges and rise to their challenge? I think probably it'll be two parts. Uh, I think the first thing is uh, get out of your head. Uh, And so many times people um, talk to themselves worse than they would let anyone else talk to them, right? Uh, Often I hear my own voice inside my head uh, speaking to me in a way that I would smack someone upside the head if they would talk to me like that. So you got to get out of your head and and look at things objectively. Uh, Like I said, I, I said, I truly believe everyone has that skill. So find that skill inside you uh, to get it out. And then the next one after that is to find someone that is either a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade ahead of you along the path that you want to travel and walk up to and say, hey, can I pick your brain for a minute? Take him out for a coffee. Interview him on a podcast, right? Uh, you'd be amazed. And like, like I mentioned earlier, I, I've been a, lucky enough to have a number of these folks come in and out of my life. And most of the time, and I say most of the time, it's probably about eight times out of 10. It's because I just walked up and asked him, hey, I really admire you in X arena. Could I pick your brain, lunch, have a cup of coffee, sit down? Um, I mean, actually, I went, uh, joined a Toastmasters group because I knew a number, two or three of the guys that, whose brains I wanted to pick were in that group, right, in the Coca-Cola company. I'm like, well, okay, I can grow my speaking skills at the same time and, you know, build a relationship with these guys at the same time. And then it's just a natural conversation. Say, dude, I know you're doing this over here in the marketing department. Can I ask you a couple of questions? And you know, people are very willing to share that kind of information, you know, and then you know, as long as you don't abuse it. And then at a point, maybe it's, uh, you know, you make the, the, uh, the relationship official. If it's a, you know organization, you can make it a mentor type of thing. Or, hey, dude, let me just pay you to coach me. Let's just get on the phone an hour a week or an hour every couple of weeks. And you just make me accountable, give me more advice, make sure I'm not going down the wrong road because I've tripped and stumbled and fumbled and face planted a number of times, way too many, right? And I would have done it a lot more if I hadn't had those folks saying, dude, don't go that way. And if you go that way, watch out for this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, oh, there's that thing you told me about. And you you can step aside and get back on track. Uh, Yeah, those are the two big ones is A, Believe in yourself, get out of your head, right? And then find someone that could help you. And like I said, they don't need to be you know, a, a millionaire, right? They just need to be a day, a week, a month, a, a year ahead of you, and you can learn from them. And then, then you know, that, that often motivates them down their path because they want to teach you more. And one of the big things I, I learned, oh gosh, I forget who it was that said it. It was uh, learn do teach right so you learn the task you do the task and then you teach the task well if you teach the task you learn the task all over again almost like at a different angle so if if i was going to give a third step that would be the third step all right if you want to rise out of the ashes help someone else in the process right so you're 
when you're helping someone else, you're out of your head then because you're worried about that. Hey, Alex, how's it going, man? How can I help you out? I hear you're having to struggle in this. When I went through a very similar example, here's what I did, right? You're not thinking about all this shit going on in your head at moments like that. You're worried about how to give to the person you're helping. So get out of your head, find a mentor and be a mentor to someone else. It's all about like being a mentor, helping that future generation in a way. Like absolutely. When I get asked, I was huge with event planning in college and I did it for three years. I made, I did huge results that that school has not done since I've left. And I get emails all the time. Hey, can you read this event proposal that I have? Mm -hmm. And I, I enjoy it because I'm able to help give my opinions on it. But if they take it, they take it, but I want to help them any way I can. So I Absolutely. enjoy doing that. And with this podcast, I'm not, we're not telling people how to live their life. Absolutely. We're all about telling people that maybe is going through something similar and maybe a different way of looking at it or maybe mm -hmm. different strategies that has helped us become better or have helped us grow in the similar situation that we've been in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I go back to one of the one of the earliest lessons that still stick with my head. I'm going to go all the way back to that book I mentioned of Bruce Lee, The Tao of Jikondo. One of the things he wrote in there that I still believe in to this day, and this is God, oh, 50 <laughs> years later, right, was absorb what is useful and discard the rest. So to your point, as there folks are listening to this show or any other uh, show uh, offering advice, offering assistance, absorb what's useful. Discard the rest. If you hear one nugget out of this, right, take it with you. Go do something with it. Uh, and then I think on the other side of that is, and then once you do something with that and you step forward in your life and your business or what your relationships or whatever, well, come back and review it later on. Maybe you'll find a new nugget, right? Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your rise to the challenge. We definitely have learned a lot and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.